All right, well, Isaiah 65, if you have a Bible, Isaiah chapter 65, we are closing on our, uh, the, the end here of our study of the book of Isaiah. We have two chapters left, so we'll, we'll see what kind of progress we make here this morning, but our focus today is Isaiah chapter 65, and we're, we're labeling this the new creation, and recall with me briefly the immediate context where we left off last week, but... Chapter 63 and 4 are connected in that there, if you recall, there is, they begin in chapter 63 verses 1 to 6 with the prophecy of Yahweh coming in judgment. Uh, his, the second coming of Christ is prophesied there at the beginning of chapter 63, which is then immediately followed by a prayer of Isaiah for Yahweh to indeed come, to carry out his promises, to establish the kingdom, etc., and that prayer is what we focused on last time, if you were with us, and it's chapter 63, verse 7, all the way to the end of chapter 64. And that prayer is essentially Isaiah asking God to fulfill the prophecies that he has thus far given. Well, today, we're going to see chapter 65 and 6, the final two chapters of the book of Isaiah. These closing chapters of the uh, prophecy of Isaiah will show us how God responds to Isaiah's marvelous prayer in the previous two chapters. What we just finished studying, the Isaiah praying for God to come, for God to, one of my favorite phrases in that is uh, chapter 64, verse 1. He says, oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, right? He's, he's pleading with God to come and to act and similarly, we see many prophets throughout the Scripture pray likewise. Uh, even John the Apostle ending the Bible, the book of Revelation, ends in a very similar manner when he says, Come quickly, Lord Jesus, right? That idea of, of praying for God uh, to come and fulfill his promises. And so we're going to see chapter 65 and 6, the final two chapters of the book of Isaiah, is showing us how God is going to answer, how he's going to respond to Isaiah's prayer. But it also serves a secondary purpose. As Alfred Martin, one of the commentators I consult, he notes that in several ways, the Lord's response to the remnant's prayer, that is, chapters 65 and 66, sums up the message of the entire book of Isaiah. We're going to see in miniature all the major themes that we have been studying for the last uh, you know, many chapters, we're going to see them succinctly summarized, in a sense, here in these final two uh, chapters of the book. And so they're, they're obviously well-structured, well-designed by God to help round out and conclude the prophecies of the book of Isaiah. Now, this chapter, chapter 65, which is our focus today, will subdivide into three major chunks, three parts, if you will. And this is what will guide our thought as we work our way through it. First, we're going to see... The Lord said that though he had consistently been presenting his love to Israel, they had rejected him, which then, of course, made judgment necessary. So the first seven verses is all about this concept of God, because remember, he's answering Isaiah's prayer, and Isaiah's prayer included, if you recall from last time, he begins with praise for who God is and what he's done in the past, admission of Isaiah, you know, Isaiah admits Israel's sinfulness, and their inadequacies as a nation. But then he also prays for God, in spite of Israel's wickedness, to still come, to rend the heavens, to come down, to fulfill his promises, set up his kingdom, etc. And so in light of that, you know, on the heels of that prayer, God responds. And God responds first by issuing this explanation, if you will, of why Israel needed to be judged. Why did she have to go through the Assyrian threat, the Babylonian captivity, etc.? So he, he begins with that explanation. But then secondly, in God's response here in chapter 65, he highlights that though God will judge the nation of Israel, nonetheless, a remnant will be preserved. That's verses 8 to 12. God will preserve a remnant. God must level judgment, but it, he will not eradicate the nation. Rather, he will preserve a remnant while he purges the wicked away from Israel. And that's verses 13 to 16 of this chapter, is he's going to talk about how he will purge the wickedness from Israel. The evildoers will be, will be purged from the nation. But then lastly, and this is really the latter half of the chapter, which makes up the primary thrust of the chapter, verse 17 to 25 describes how the Lord will establish a glorious kingdom in which peace and righteousness will flourish. Again, this is a repetition of what we've already seen thus far. Like you said, uh, like as Alfred Martin pointed out, these final two chapters are in many ways a summary of the book of Isaiah at large, all the major themes. Well, one of the major themes of the book of Isaiah is this idea of the messianic kingdom, 
From New Testament lingo, we call this the millennium. And we call it that only because the book of Revelation, chapter 20, gives us the fact that this kingdom will last for a thousand years. And so there's where we get the term millennium. But the idea is here reasserted that kingdom has been a huge theme from chapter 2, 4, 9, 11, right? All throughout the book of Isaiah, this has been a major theme. But he's going to elaborate, giving us more details here than he has thus far given. And so there's some interesting stuff to describe as we work our way through it, okay? So that's, that's how we're going to see uh, this chapter unfold. So let's begin. If you've got your Bible, follow along as I read. Chapter 65, verse 1, we'll read to verse 7, and then we'll pause there. We'll comment. All right, it says this, God's response. I am sought of them that ask not for me. I am found of them that sought me not. I said, Behold me, behold me unto a nation that was not called by my name. I have spread out my hands all the day unto a rebellious people which walks in a way that was not good after their own thoughts. A people that provokes me to anger continually to my face, that sacrifice in gardens, that burn incense upon the altars of brick, which remain among the graves and lodge in the monuments, which eat swine's flesh and broth of abominable things is in their vessels." which say, Stand by yourself, come not near to me, for I am holier than thou. These are a smoke in my nose, a fire that burns all the day. Behold, it is written before me, I will not keep silence, but will recompense, even recompense into their bosom. Your iniquities and the iniquities of your fathers together, says the Lord, which have burned incense upon the mountains and blasphemed me upon the hills. Therefore will I measure their former work into their bosom. Pause there. Now again, the theme of God's righteous judgment, his explanation why he must bring judgment upon the nation is here discussed in verses 1 to 7. Now as he highlights in verses 1 and 2, God has constantly reached out to Israel. Uh, He has revealed himself to those, as he says here, that did not even ask for that revelation. He says, I am sought of them that ask me not. Uh, or excuse me, that them that ask not for me, I am found of them that sought me not. Behold, behold me, I've said to a nation that is not called by my name. I've spread out my hands all day to a rebellious people, which walks in a way that was not good after their own thoughts. Now, we won't go there for sake of time, but do jot it down. Romans chapter 10, verses 20 and 21, Paul quotes this section, and he helps us discern what this uh, section is talking about. Verse 1 is most likely alluding to Gentiles, while verse 2 is alluding to Jews. In other words, as he says, reading it in reverse, verse 2, I've spread out my hands all day to a rebellious people. God has spent centuries reaching out to the nation of Israel and yet the, and revealing himself and pleading with them and, and showing them his goodness and his grace and making promises to them, etc. And yet they have been rebellious. He says they go in their own way. They have constantly rejected God and God's truth. Therefore, what's the result? Well, verse 1, He has sought of them that asked not for me. I am found of them that sought me not. Behold, behold me into a nation, he says, that was not called by my name. Paul will take that verse and apply it to the fact that he is preaching to the Gentiles. In other words, we see in this prediction here in Isaiah the reality that Israel has rebelliously rejected God's good grace and revelation. Therefore, God's grace and revelation, his gospel, will go to other nations. Nations not called by his name. That's Gentiles, right? Gentile nations that did not seek after God will nonetheless find God through what we discover, and that's Paul's point, through the apostolic mission in the book of Acts and, and beyond is that we see that concept of the rebellion of Israel has actually brought grace to the Gentiles. And God's salvation of the Gentiles will then then in turn, according to Paul in Romans chapter 11, bring grace back to Israel. And so we're going to see this, this cool interplay. But nonetheless, it here highlights this principle that once received, people have a responsibility to seek God based upon the revelation that he gives them. Right? He reveals himself, and when God speaks, when he reveals himself, whether it's through creation, through conscience, through history, through the scripture, however God is revealing himself, we have a responsibility to respond to that revelation. But, as he labels Israel here as stubborn and rebellious, Israel continued, in spite of the fact that they are the most privileged nation on the face of the earth, that had God acting in and through them, uh, you know, revealing his truth and his word to them, revealing his power through them to the ends of the earth. 
they were the most privileged nation on the face of the earth in that regard. And yet they continued to be stubborn, independent, and an evil people, refusing to ultimately submit to God's revelation, God's truth. In fact, not only did they not not submit to God's truth, but they went on in gross rebellion, which is what verses 3 and following highlight, is that Israel provoked God constantly by doing several things. First, by worshiping in pagan gardens. He mentions here in verse 3, he says, A people provoke me to anger continually to my face that sacrifice in gardens and burn incense upon altars of brick. Now, this idea is we, we have seen elsewhere in the book of Isaiah. Back in Isaiah chapter 1, verse 29, we'll see it again in Isaiah 66 and verse 17. But it's a reference to the pagan shrines, the idea of the altar of brick that was placed in a garden, right? How many times, we, as we're reading 1 and Kings, 1 and Chronicles, it talks about the groves and the gardens, and they are shrines to pagan deities, and there would typically be, uh, it depends on the deity and, and how it would be set up. Sometimes there was an actual temple. Oftentimes, as alluded here, in just a couple of verses, he'll talk about how they burn incense on, on top all the mountains, is they would often just go to a high place and they would build an altar and a shrine they would, and then they would plant a, you know, uh, a garden around it to beautify, to honor the gods, etc. He's referencing pagan worship. But they not only provoked God by worshiping pagan in pagan gardens, but also by being involved in necromancy, which is, again, recall, it means consulting the dead. Uh, and they would do this while they would sit among the monuments or the graves. That's verse 4. He says, says they remain among the graves and lodge in the monuments. What they would do, oftentimes, a pagan, those uh, practicing necromancy or a similar practice, would go to the graveyards, to places where their, their uh, you know, dead relatives or those who are on to the, to the afterlife have been buried or entombed. And they would go there and they would sleep and they would pray and hope that they would be visited by the dead in their dreams. And they would try to consult the dead in order to discern the future. And God says, remember Deuteronomy 18, he says, don't do that. Right? God is the only one whose jurisdiction extends to the future. He's the one that reveals to us what we ought know in order to, to you know, of the future in order to live more morally acceptable before him in the present. So God's the one who gives us his truth. He says, don't go outside of his jurisdiction, flee God's jurisdiction by going to these occult practices. But nonetheless, Israel was guilty of doing so. So this verse highlights that. Recall, we won't go there for sake of time, but Isaiah also referenced this back in chapter 8 in verse 19, if you recall, where he says, you go to those who peep and mutter. Remember that? You go to those who peep and mutter. And it's a reference to this idea of the mantra, the pagan you know, mantras that they would try to, again, it's practice of necromancy and other occult practices where they're trying to foretell the future. But he says in Isaiah chapter 8, he says, don't go to those who peep and mutter. Rather, go to the law and to the prophets. Go to the testimony. Go to the scripture. And there's, you know, which God has revealed through his true prophets. It's a pretty potent passage there in Isaiah chapter 8. We discussed that many moons ago. But nonetheless, so Israel provoked God by these two things. But not only that, it goes on in verse 4 to describe how they continued to provoke God by disregarding his dietary laws. It says at the end of verse 4 that they eat swine's flesh and the broth of abominable things is in their vessels. In other words, they did not care what God said regarding the clean and unclean laws. For instance, in Leviticus chapter 11 and elsewhere, things that God placed upon the nation of Israel that they ought do in order to be clean and thereby approach him through the temple tabernacle. But they disregarded God's commands. And then he also says in verse 5 and following that he describes how they continued to provoke God by being religiously arrogant until they became as repulsive and irritating to him as smoke in a person's nose. That's verse 5. He says, which say, stand by yourself, come not near me, for I am holier than thou. Do you see the irony? On the one hand, they're unclean before God because they're eating swine's flesh, drinking things, you know, broth of things they shouldn't. They're disregarding God's uh, clean and unclean laws, which recall in our past studies, those clean and unclean laws for ancient Israel were designed to give them the means by which they could approach the tabernacle and have fellowship with God. So those who are guilty of disregarding those uh, dietary laws on, in the very next verse are claiming to be holier than the next person in line. You see, stand away from me, I am holier than thou. 
right? In other words, no, you're not. You're two-faced. You're a hypocrite. But that's the whole point, is on the one hand, they are ignoring the clear commands of Scripture, and yet they're claiming to be, on the other hand, religiously holy and acceptable before God and you know, self-righteously looking down their nose at everybody else. And God says at the end of verse 5, he says, these are a smoke in my nose, a fire that burns all the day. In other words, he says, you're repulsive to me. So this is then, of course, not a very flattering description of ancient Israel, but then he goes on. Because of their sins, the Lord has to judge them. That's what he says he will do. Verse 6 and 7, he says, Behold, it's written before me, I will not keep silence, but I will recompense, even recompense in their bosom, your iniquities and iniquities of your fathers together, says the Lord, which have burned incense upon the mountains. There's that idea of the high place upon the mountains, shrines that we talked about a second ago. He says, And you blasphemy upon the hills. Therefore, will I measure their former work into their bosom? So God declares, verse 6 and 7, because of the sins that he just mentioned, that he would indeed judge them. Recall, the book of Isaiah has been explicit about this, that God used two primary means of judgment against his nation, the nation of Judah, uh, in the book of Isaiah. First was the Assyrian threat. That was covered in the first 37 chapters of the book. Right, the mighty Assyrian Empire that came in, decimating the land of Israel, pinning up Hezekiah like a bird in his cage, as Sennacherib will later say in the Sennacherib prison. But God not only used the Assyrian threat, but also the Babylonian exile, which he predicted in chapter 38, and it will be fulfilled later in Isaiah, like after Isaiah's day. It's going to happen later, but he nonetheless predicted it. And that's the center focus from chapter 38 to 66, uh, in a sense. And so this concept is God's going to use these two primary mechanisms to discipline his people, to bring judgment upon them, to punish their iniquity, to purge the, the evil out of the nation, to bring the nation back to himself. Now, it's interesting to note that the catalog of sins that we just here read about in, in chapter 65, verses 1 to 7, it parallels the book of Revelation. We won't go there for sake of time, but Revelation 21, 8 and 22, verse 15 will both list uh, you know, a catalog of sins that is similar. Again, it's, it's, they're not identical. But the point is, there's a parallel here, is that this list of sins, just like the lists of sins mentioned in the book of Revelation, will lead to what Revelation calls the second death and will thus exclude their practitioners from the holy city. Remember, he says, those who practice this and this and this and this and this, in the book of Revelation, will not enter into the new Jerusalem. They will not enter into the holy city. Well, notice that same parallel is going to, we're going to see it here in the book of Isaiah. He lists the sins, all the things they've done wrong, the reasons why God has to judge the nation. But then he's going to talk about what he's going to do next. He's going to save a remnant, purge out the wicked and evil, and only the remnant will enter into the kingdom in the latter half of the chapter, right? It's the same sort of thought flow. That's what I want you to see. Is Isaiah 65 and 6 is paralleling Revelation uh, chapter 20 to 22, all right? And notice even it says in verse 6 that God has written these sins down. They are inscribed before him. Revelation 20 verse 12 also echoes that same thought, that at the great white throne judgment, God is going to open up the books on all of our deeds, right, that have been written therein. We will be judged. And again, uh, we've talked about that before in the book of Revelation, our study of Revelation that great white throne judgment is the judgment that unbelievers will face. We as believers will also face a judgment, but it's called the judgment seat of Christ, or sometimes called, off the Greek word, the bima, the bima seat judgment. And we too will answer for the deeds that we have performed in this body, the Bible says. But it seems to be post-salvation. In other words, in light of having been saved, how have we lived in faithfulness or lack thereof? That's what believers will be judged for. But the unbelievers will be judged for uh, you know, their, their evil deeds and be condemned because they are not in the Lamb's book of life. In other words, they have not been covered. Their deeds have not been covered by the blood. And that's the book of Revelation stuff. But it parallels in thought this, this passage here in Isaiah. All right, so now look at verse 8 and following. And notice this next major chunk. Let's read from verse 8 to verse 16. And notice how God, though he is giving them an explanation why he must judge the nation, he's then also saying that there will be a remnant preserved, though the wicked will be purged from the nation. Let's look at this. Verse 8, he says, Thus says the Lord, As the new wine is found in the cluster, and as one says, Destroy it not, for a blessing is in it, so will I do for my servants 
sakes, that I may not destroy them all. I will bring forth a seed out of Jacob and out of Judah, an inheritor of uh, my mountains, and mine elect shall inherit it. My servants shall dwell there, and Sharon shall be a fold of flocks. I remember Sharon, that's the, the valley, or yeah, it's a valley, it's a plain, the plain of Sharon, or Sharon, is uh, on the Mediterranean coast, just west of the Judean hills. It says, the plain of Sharon will be like a fold of flocks in the valley of Achor, a place for herds to lie down in for my people that have sought me. Again, I won't spend long with this, but the valley of Achor is significant. Where was the first time valley of Achor was mentioned? Do you remember this? It's one of those tidbits of geography that we tend to miss, but that's where Achan and his family were stoned for Achan's sin. Remember that in Joshua chapter 7. And Hosea is going to use a similar prophecy in Hosea that Isaiah does here. The point is, he, he takes a location where something bad happened in, in Hebrew history, and he will say that in the restoration, God's going to take even that bad place where we have you know mind association with sin and evil and judgment, but he's going to take that and he's going to restore it to where even the valley of Achor where Achan was slain and his, with his family because of his sin, God's going to allow that to be a productive place in Judean society, that he's going to restore that. So it's a picture of God taking the worst of the worst and exalting it to a place of restoration. All right, so don't miss the significance there. Verse 11, he says, But you are they that forsake the Lord. Okay, so get this. He just said, verse 8, 9, 10, that there will be a remnant preserved, and he's going to grant them the mountains of Judah. In other words, they will be the inheritors of God's promises. God will preserve a remnant. But, verse 11, he's now addressing the wicked. But you are they that forsake the Lord, that forget my holy mountain, that prepare a table for that troop, and that furnish the drink offering unto that number. We'll come back to that. Therefore will I number you to the sword, and you shall all bow down to the slaughter. Because when I called, you did not answer. When I spake, you did not hear but did evil before my eyes and did choose that wherein I delighted not. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, behold, my servants shall eat, but you shall be hungry. Behold, my servants shall drink, but you shall be thirsty. Behold, my servants shall rejoice, but you shall be ashamed. Behold, my servants shall sing for joy of heart, but you shall cry for sorrow of heart and shall howl for vexation of spirit. And you shall leave your name for a curse unto my chosen. For the Lord God shall slay you and call his servants by another name. That he who blesses himself in the earth shall bless himself in the God of truth. And he that swears in the earth shall swear by the God of truth. Because the former troubles are forgotten because they are hid from mine eyes. Pause there. Now, notice the thought flow. Pretty simple thought flow. Profound language, right? Man, he's a wordsmith, isn't he? Isaiah is pretty awesome. But he says... In essence, that though judgment was addressed to the whole nation, right? He just said in verse 6 and 7 that he's going to judge the whole nation. But nonetheless, he now informs us in verses 8, 9, 10 that this judgment will not be total. In other words, he's not going to wipe out the whole nation. Rather, just as a few grapes are left when the vineyards are gleaned, as Deuteronomy 24 verse 21 describes, and verse 8 is there alluding, the cluster that's left over in the vintage. Just as a few grapes are left be, uh, when vineyards are gleaned, so a remnant will be left who will return to the land. So, verses 11 to 16, then point out not only the, the remnant, that's verses 8, 9, 10, the remnant that will be restored to the land, those who are faithful and trust in God, the minority of the nation, but the majority of the nation, will go, they're going to be destroyed. That's verses 11 to 16 that we just read. These verses point out that those who do not trust God nor regard his temple will be led away to slaughter. And he uses, again, I mean, for sake of time, I'm not going to get lost in all the, the language here, but there's some really cool word plays going on. For instance, in verse 11, when it says that you, speaking of to the wicked in the nation, he says, you are they that forsake the Lord, that forget my holy mountain, that prepare a table for a troop and furnish a drink offering to that number. The term troop and number in verse 11 are translated various ways given your translation. The word troop and number in, uh, can also be translated, the words are actually gad and mani. Sometimes they're translated fortune or destiny. But the point is, these are names of false gods that Israel would worship 
in her attempts to know the future. Back to those occultic practices we were talking about just a second ago. As they would worship various false gods, these ones, sometimes known as fortune and destiny, would be worshipped for that purpose, is that they would place food and drink out before these idols. They would place, you know, build shrines, grant sacrifice or offerings or something to these gods in order to try and discern the future. But God says that people who do this, now notice the wordplay, people who do this are going to be numbered to go to the, to the sword. Look at verse 12. He says, therefore, will I number you, same word. You go to the, uh, the number, or that's, again, that's in Hebrew, it's the word mani, and it's, it's, it's a word, it's translated here, number, but it's, again, it's a proper name of a god that was worshipped, but he's making a wordplay. You go to the god who knows your number, okay, have you ever done that before, right? I mean, the whole idea is your lucky number. Well, it actually goes back to some pagan roots. The idea is, hey, what's your lucky number? Well, this concept is just, that's what they were doing. They were trying to tell the future. And he says, you go to the God of your lucky number, but what is God going to do? He's the true God. He says, I'm going to now number you among the transgressors. I'm going to number you among the sword, those who are given to the sword. Does that make sense? He's using a word play, which is kind of fascinating. Peter, and then we'll come up. Go, Peter. Exactly, exactly. Yep, so that's a good illustration. The writing of the wall, Daniel Daniel 5, yeah. right? The mini, mini, tekel, ufarsin or whatever. That's, yeah, that's the same word. All right, now that's Aramaic, but, I, I, uh, but it's the same, it's related, right? Aramaic and Hebrew are related. Cognates, exactly. It's, it's the same concept. He says you're numbered, right? You've been weighed in the balances and you've been found wanting, right? Exactly, good connection. Is that what you were gonna ask? Okay, all right, you guys are on the same wavelength. I love it. All right, no, that's good. That's a good illustration of it because that's exactly what's going on here. But notice God's wordplay. He says, those who do such a thing, verse 12, he says, therefore I will number you to the sword. He says, your number's up and I'm gonna give you to the sword, right? In other words, you're gonna die when the Babylonians come in and wipe out the nation. He says, you that bow down uh, he, to the slaughter, they're going to be numbered to the slaughter. Those who bow down, meaning to these false gods. They, they worship the false gods. God's going to number them, set them aside for slaughter. And he says, when I called, you did not answer. When I spake, you did not hear. In other words, he's vindicating why God's vindicating himself. Why is he going to do this? Well, because when he called, they wouldn't listen. He cried out to them, but they would not hear. Right? God gave them opportunity after opportunity after opportunity to repent, but they've refused to do so. Therefore, God is going, they've gone on to deli- you know, deliberately choosing to sin, so God's going to purge them from the nation. Now, verses 13 to 16, we just read it, but these are powerful verses that dramatically contrast between people who are the Lord's servants, that is, those who will enter the kingdom, in verses 17 to 25 that we're getting to, the remnant, versus those who are, that have departed from God and forgotten him those who need to be purged from the nation. And notice, again, I mean, it's, we won't take each line by line, but notice in verse 13, he says, Thus the, therefore the Lord God says, Behold, my servants will eat, but you will be hungry. Behold, my servants will drink, but you will be thirsty. And he goes on. Do you see the point? He's making a dramatic series of contrasts. This is what God's people will enjoy. This is what you will suffer as those who are going to be purged from the nation, those who refuse to trust God and follow him. Now, in summary, if you take all these descriptions, the, the, the righteous or the remnant will eat, they will drink, they will rejoice, they will, you know, etc. What you lump those together, and we see that uh, it parallels, again, the book of Revelation and elsewhere in the book of Isaiah that, we saw, are, that we've already seen, where God's people are promised a fellowship feast. They're promised the marriage supper of the Lamb. They're promised, you know, in fact, I just recently, my personal reading, I'm in Matthew chapter 8, that's the whole centurion servant scene, where Jesus heals the centurion servant, but because of the great faith of the centurion, and he turns and he says to the crowd that this man, and he's a Gentile, he's a Roman centurion, he's a pagan, but because he exercised faith in Christ, Jesus says, I've not found such great a faith, no, not in Israel. He says, and this man, right, and he speaks of many that will be Gentiles that will come to sit down, he says, and eat and drink with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. 
But those who are sons of the kingdom, many Jews, he says, will be cast into outer darkness. And Jesus makes that statement. That's Matthew chapter 8. It just popped into my head, so it's not on your notes, but write that down. But in Matthew 8, it's the same idea. It is often in the scriptures. We saw it in Isaiah. Uh, we see it here in Isaiah 65, 13. We saw it back in Isaiah 25. We see it in Matthew 8. Many places in the book of Revelation is the idea is that those who are of the remnant, those who trust in God, will one day sit down to this marriage feast where, and Jesus talks about that many times in his parables, does he not? The marriage supper. But we will sit down in fellowship with God, with the saints of old, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. They're all going to be there. And we're going to have a wonderful time, as it says here, of eating, drinking, singing, joy in our hearts. But those who are... Again, not of the remnant. Those who have forsaken God, he says, will go hungry. They will go thirsty. They will howl for vexation of spirit. They will not sing for joy. They will scream of pain. Wow, pretty dramatic picture, is it not? Jesus will talk about this often in, the, in, in his teaching throughout the uh, gospel narratives. And so, that again, powerful contrast here. But this sets us up beautifully for the next section, okay? So, verse 17 to 25 is the latter, you know, last section of this chapter, and it describes this wonderful kingdom that will be granted to those who are faithful, those who are of the remnant, right? Those who, as it says here, are, are the chosen of God, who all those who, I didn't really comment on it, but verse 15 and 16, he says, Speaking of those who are wicked and have fled from God, he says, you will leave your name for a curse to my chosen. That those who make it into the kingdom will remember those who didn't, but they will only remember them in the sense of a curse. Cursed be their name. Right? That's the concept, is that they have rejected God. But they, and so they'll be excluded from the joy of, of this wonderful kingdom. And their name will be as a byword among God's people. But this beautiful kingdom then is described in verse 17 and 25. Okay, so let's read it and then we'll come back and comment. Verse 17, he says, For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth. The former shall not be remembered nor come into mind. But be you glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem a rejoicing and her people a joy. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and joy in my people. And the voice of weeping shall no more be heard in her nor the voice of crying. There shall no more be thence an infant of days, nor an old man that, that does not fulfill his days. For the child shall die a hundred years old, but the sinner, being a hundred years old, shall be accursed. And they shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat the fruit of them. They shall not build and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat. For as the days of a tree are the days of my people, and my elect shall long enjoy the work of their hands." They shall not labor in vain, nor bring forth for trouble. For they are the seed of the blessed of the Lord, and their offspring with them. And it shall come to pass, that before they call, I will answer. And while they are yet speaking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb shall feed together. The lion shall eat straw like the bullock, and the dust shall be the serpent's meat. They shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain, says the Lord." Now, before we jump into commenting on these verses in particular, notice, let's just talk for a minute just identifying this, this section. What is it talking about? Well, recall that the need for a new heavens and a new earth has already been suggested by the fact that Isaiah said back in Isaiah 51 verse 6 that the heavens are going to vanish away, that the earth is going to grow old like a garment. Right? He's already made comments like that back in chapter 51. He also foreshadowed this idea of a new heavens, a new earth, a restored kingdom, Earlier in passages such as Isaiah 11, which we'll get to it in a moment, but verse 25 of our text is almost a verbatim quote of what Isaiah already said back in Isaiah chapter 11. So it's clearly parallel passages, as well as Isaiah 24. So in other words, he's already, Isaiah's already given us hints that this heaven and earth is going to pass away, that there's a new one coming, and that this will be a perfect place of total restoration. And Yet, though he's already foreshadowed this, he's already given us indications that this is what God intends for history, he here elaborates upon it, giving us more detail than he's thus far given. 
Now again, these details that, that we see in these verses must describe the millennial kingdom because it does still reference dying, right? In verse 20, for instance, it still references the fact that people can die. But as we'll see, they will live unusually long. So though this is probably a reference to the millennial kingdom because death is still here mentioned, it is identified with the eternal state because it's here called a new heavens and a new earth. Recall that in the book of Revelation, the new heavens and the new earth, referenced in Revelation 21.1, follow the millennial period of Revelation 20 and verse 4. Do you remember that? If you're reading along the book of Revelation, you first have this idea of the kingdom, the millennium, where there can still be death. But then you have the etern- what we call the eternal state, described beginning in Revelation 21.1, where it says explicitly there is no death. Does that make sense? In other words, when we read Isaiah 65 and we look at the details, it seems that this is a direct reference to the millennial kingdom, because death is still present. So most likely what Isaiah is doing is he's not distinguishing between these two aspects of God's rule. Rather, he saw them together as one. Or as many scholars call it, the millennium is merely the first stage of the eternal state. It's like stage one, right? It's still God's kingdom on earth, but it's on this earth. That's Revelation 20. Then there's a recreation, a new heavens and a new earth. Does that make sense? Now, there's a process of recreation that begins in the millennium, but the total new heavens and new earth is Revelation 21. Yeah, you got a question? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, correct. Because it's talking about the the infant uh, in verse twenty, and it's it's most likely a reference to that. Because, like you said, when Christ comes back, or you know, the rapture happens, and we are as believers living right now, we are then what the scripture says is we are glorified. Right, and the idea we're given a glorified body. We have that idea in Philippians 3, 1 Corinthians 15, uh, alluded to in 1 Thessalonians 4. So you have several passages that make that pretty clear. But not all who enter into the kingdom will have been raptured saints. Does that make sense? For instance, this is specifically talking about the remnant of Israel. All right, so these are the people who are still alive at the coming of Christ. Does that make sense? But they weren't believers until Christ comes. That's the Zechariah 12, you know, the remnant that trusts in him. Does that make sense? They will not be in glorified bodies, but they will enter the kingdom in physical bodies. Does that make sense? Peter. Perhaps uh, the millennial kingdom is actually stage two because of Luke 17, 20 and 21, where Jesus says the kingdom of God does not come with observation. Nor will they say, see here, see there, for indeed the kingdom of God is within you. Right. No, no, that's good. So there's various ways to take that verse, uh, but let's, that, that's a good point. Is, did you all catch what Peter said? Is that the millennium kingdom, millennial kingdom, in a sense, could be stage two. Because what was stage one? Well, it was actually the first coming of Christ. When he says, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Or he, and he's referring to himself as the king who is present, now of course they reject him, so the earthly kingdom where he is sitting upon the throne of David, that didn't happen in his first coming. But it was in a sense inaugurated, right? And different scholars will, will grapple with how to say this and will, you know, it becomes semantics at some point. But the idea is there was a beginning stage where the king was here and now he's even collecting kingdom subjects. Right now, if you and I are, as a believer in Christ, Paul calls us citizens of the kingdom. Now, the kingdom's not here yet in a literal, physical sense, but in the sense that we have the Spirit of God, we're believers in Christ, we have the Spirit of God within us, we are members of the kingdom. In other words, when the kingdom comes, we are granted entrance into that kingdom. Does that make sense? And that's the whole bridegroom thing in many of Jesus' parables like the, the, the ten virgins, right, who are watching and for the bridegroom to come. Some are ready, some are not, remember? And that idea is that they were then denied entrance into the kingdom because they weren't ready when it came. Does that make sense? So, so you're absolutely right. In a sense, there's, there's a kingdom stage one right now. where we And we are called 
2 uh, Corinthians 5, ambassadors to the kingdom. What's that? It means I'm a member of the kingdom in that I'm a believer in Christ and I have the Spirit of God. And the kingdom's coming, right? We're praying, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. But I'm then to preach to you in the world that, hey, you too can become a member of the kingdom. And that's what Isaiah's doing. Remember, to his audience in his day, that's essentially what he's doing, is he's saying, guys, the kingdom's coming. You can be part of the remnant that trusts and believes and enters the kingdom, or you can be those who reject. Does that make sense? And therefore, you're denied entrance into that kingdom. Jesus even personified this. I just finished again. I'm in Matthew, personal read. I'm in Matthew 8. But in Matthew 7, right, end of the Sermon on the Mount, how does Jesus end his sermon? Do you remember that? He uses three different illustrations, but one of them is he says, there will be many who stand at the gate in that day, saying, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name? Done many mighty miracles in your name? Have we not, you know, done this, that, that? When he says, depart from me, I never knew you. Now, that is a picture of admittance or denial of admittance into the kingdom. As Jesus is there describing himself as the gatekeeper, deciding who gets in and who doesn't. Does that make sense? Which, in that time and place, recall, was a huge thing. (laughs) Because here, okay, so let me end with this. All right, I only have a few minutes. So we're going to just kind of divide, and we'll come back to, uh, you know, this, this latter half, and we'll talk more about the kingdom next time. But go back to that Matthew 7 scene. In fact, turn there. All right, I got, I got just a couple minutes. So let's go turn there, camp on this idea for just a second. And then we'll circle back next time here in a couple of weeks. Uh, we'll circle back to this idea uh, and describe, let the text of Isaiah 65 describe to us in more detail what that kingdom actually looks like, right? What is, how is it described, etc. But go to Matthew chapter 7. Remember, this is Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is finishing this. Uh, famous sermon with a number of illustrations where he's basically applying it. He's bringing it down to an application point. Are you going to be a member of the kingdom or not? And what determines it is whether or not you trust in the words of Jesus. Let's just read this, all right? Start in verse 21. I mean, really, we could go back to verse 15 and even verse 13. All right, okay. Well, actually, let's go back to 13. He says, Enter you in at the straight gate, for wide is the gate, broad is the way that leads to destruction. But, uh, he says, And many there be which go therein. Because straight is the gate, and narrow is the way which leads unto life. And few there be that find it. In other words, he does talk about, right, the two ways, the two gates, and the two different destinations. But verse 15, then, he goes on, and he says, Beware of false prophets, which come to you in sheep's clothing but inwardly are ravening wolves. You shall know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes of thorns or figs of thistles? Even so, every good tree brings forth good fruit, but a corrupt tree brings forth evil fruit. A good tree cannot bring forth evil fruit, neither can a corrupt tree bring forth good fruit. Every tree that brings not forth good fruit is hewn down and cast into the fire. Wherefore, by their fruits you shall know them. Not everyone that says unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven. But he that does the will of my Father, which is in heaven, many shall say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, and in your name have cast out uh, devils or demons, and in your name done many wonderful works? And then will I profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you that work iniquity. Therefore, Whosoever hears these things of mine. Now notice this. This is the whole, and we'll finish reading here in a second. It's the whole, you know, build on the sand versus the rock thing. But what is the rock? Well, it, he, he here describes it. Verse 24. Whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them. Does them. That's not a, that's not a word. Doggone it. But he says, whoever hears these things of mine and does them, I will liken him to a wise man which builds his house upon a rock. And the rain descends, the flood comes, the wind blows, beats upon the house, and it falls not, for it was founded upon a rock. Everyone that hears these sayings of mine and does them not. Okay, so notice it's the sayings of Jesus. Are you going to listen to him, believe him, follow him, you know, trust in him, or not? That's the issue. He says, so those who hear these things of mine and do, uh, does them not, verse 
26, shall be likened to a foolish man which builds his house upon the sand. And the rain descends, the flood comes, the winds blow, beats upon the house, and it falls, and great was the fall of it. And then, of course, verse 28 and 29 just kind of end the sermon by giving the crowd's reaction to Jesus' words, which it says in verse, this is, I want to draw your attention to this. He says, it came to pass when Jesus had ended these sayings, the people were astonished at his doctrine. Why? Because he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. Now, we've talked about this before, and I got just a minute to summarize this. But this idea of he taught them and one is having authority and not as the scribes, we have lots of evidence of this, that the scribes, uh, Pharisees, Sadducees, etc., when they taught, they, they had very little interaction with the text of Scripture itself. Rather, they would always quote an authority. Does that make sense? They would quote another rabbi that had taught on some subject, and they anchored their authority to that said individual. And that's why there were schools, like you know, the school of, of Hillel and Shammai. And you know, they, they would have big-name rabbis that they would follow. Well, Jesus didn't do that. He didn't quote rabbis. He just taught the Scripture, and everyone quoted him, right? I mean, the point is, he established himself as an authority that went straight to the scriptures, interpreted the scriptures, and applied the scriptures directly. Not only that, he would prophesy. He would give us things that were outside of the scriptures, right? Things that weren't even included in the Old Testament scriptures because he's a prophet and he can give us new truth. So Jesus is teaching not as a scribe, but he's teaching as a prophet. He is now in line with like an Isaiah of old and a Moses and, you know, etc. Well, another thing he's drawing here is he's not only asserting himself as an authoritative teacher of the Scripture, different than the scribes, but he's also putting himself in opposition to the Pharisees, Sadducees, etc. Do you recall this? The Pharisees in this day, we get this from Alfred Edersheim, and he was, uh, oh, I, mean, I got to remember my dates, about 100 years ago, maybe. Eh, maybe not that long. I'm trying to remember when he died. But he was a trained rabbi who later became a Christian. And it's, it's, he's, he's got some really interesting writings, particularly in the life of Christ. But he goes on about this, that in this time and place, the Pharisees and the scribes were so revered and feared by the people, the populace, the Pharisees actually claimed the title of being gatekeepers. Do you recall this? And I've shared this with you before, but a gatekeeper, they mean that in that they, the Pharisees, believed that their own righteousness guaranteed them entrance into the kingdom. That they had a, they were a lock, you know what I'm saying? But not only were they guaranteed entrance into the kingdom, they also believed that they had the authority, because they were so righteous, they would be delegated authority by God to determine who gets in the kingdom and who gets out. That was their claim. So that's why you don't cross a Pharisee in this day. What happens, remember the whole blind man who was given his sight, John chapter 9? And then the, but that happened on a Sabbath? Right? And the Pharisees are upset. And the Pharisees go to the parents and they say, hey, was, was your son born blind? Right? They were trying to authenticate the miracle. And what was the parents' reaction? Remember? Yeah, they say, well, I, I want to stay out of it. Go ask our son. And, and it says explicitly in John 9, they did that because they feared being cast out of the synagogue. You know, they feared being turned away from the kingdom. They feared the Pharisees, believing that the Pharisees Again, do you see the parallel? It's kind of like a Catholic pope going on here, right? You see, in, you see in the parallel where he's the vicar of Christ, or so he claims, so that he determines who gets in and out of the kingdom? That's what, that's what he claims, okay? Well, the Pharisees were claiming something very similar in their day. But what does Jesus mean when he says, many will say unto me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not, etc.? But then he's the one who turns them away at the kingdom. Do you see the claim? Jesus is distancing himself from the Pharisees, and he is claiming authority to be the one who grants or denies access to the kingdom. Does that make sense? That's, and that was another thing going on in verse 28 and 29 when the people would have, <gasps> a gasp would have gone up, right? You are, what are you claiming to be? But that's, that's the whole point, is Jesus caused a lot of those gasps throughout his ministry because he made claims that flew in the face of the established order of the Pharisees, Sadducees, etc. Does that make sense? And so when he makes claims like this about the kingdom, it's a really important thing because he is claiming to be 
the fulfillment, the messi- you know, the fulfillment of all those messianic promises of old. He's claiming to be the Davidic covenant, you know, fulfillment of Isaiah and all of these promises. And oh man, and he's shouting it from the rooftops. And they ultimately killed him for it. But that's, of course, the same decision facing you and I today, right? Is like, what are we to do with the claims of Christ? Is he genuinely the one with whom we have to do? Will, do you believe that you will die? And when you die, you're going to stand before Jesus. And he is going to determine your eternal fate. That's what Jesus claimed. You either believe that, therefore submit to Jesus, trust in Jesus, and receive entrance into the kingdom, or you resist that, but you do so at your own peril. You might want to take that gamble, but I would suggest otherwise. Right? The idea is bow now to the, to the claims of Christ. Accept him as Lord and Savior and be granted entrance into the kingdom. All right? Peter, thank you for that rabbit trail, my man. Yeah, that's right. Amen. That's a good one. Okay, next time, i got to close in prayer, but next time we're going to come back to Isaiah 65 and we're going to see the descriptions of the kingdom. We'll talk more about this kingdom idea because Isaiah 65 gives us some really cool information about it. Um, and it's, it's very helpful. All right? So let's close in prayer and then we'll get ready for the next service. Father, thank you for this time. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you for your beloved son. Thank you for the cross work of Christ, which is our means by which we can have our sins forgiven. We can be granted access into this eternal kingdom. May we not align ourselves with those that Isaiah describes who reject you, reject your word. You hold your hands out to them, but they're rebellious. And the result is that they will go hungry, thirsty, and howl out of pain and sorrow rather than enjoy your kingdom that you have prepared from before the foundations of the world. Father, may we be sure where we align ourselves and may each in this room today submit to the claims of Christ to trust in Jesus for our soul's salvation. Be granted entrance into the kingdom to enjoy one day that eternal bliss that you have prepared and promised for those who trusted you. So Lord, we ask for your guidance and direction in the remainder of our study of the book of Isaiah. There's so much here for our learning. We are so eager to learn and we pray that you would help us to be moved by what we learn, to be moved to worship, to humble submission and obedience and evangelism, to go tell others about the joy that they too can experience. God help us, we pray. So we commit to you the remainder of our study, the remainder of our time this morning and the service to follow. May you be magnified through all of it. And we ask this in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.